Father, you are the faithful one, the only God, the God of steadfast love. We're, we're so blessed to come together this morning as your children because what Jesus has done for us. Uh, please take my offering of effort this morning. Would you multiply it, Lord? Would you translate it to the heart of each person here? Uh, bless your people. Give us hearts to hear your spirit this morning. Lord, would you speak with power through your word? And Father, too, uh, we know how precious these little ones are to you and to us. Uh, would you bless the teachers today? Would you meet each child as only you can, Lord? May they know your presence, your love, your peace today. May their trust and faith and love for you grow. Would you establish them, Lord, for a life lived in deep fellowship with you? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as, as Eric so help, helpfully uh, helped to bring us into this mindset this morning that we traditionally celebrate this Palm Sunday. Uh, most of you know if, you, if you're not visiting today that uh, we have been in a, we've begun a series uh, under uh, Pastor Ben, uh, an expository study of the book of Ephesians, and so we're kind of inserting this message in today. And I've chosen to speak to a more traditional Palm Sunday uh, uh, kind of topic, but at the same time, too, um, I'm probably going to take this to an application that may be a bit untraditional, but feel led to that end. Um, so as Eric had reminded us, Palm Sunday is this remembrance that we refer to as the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. The event is captured in all four of the Gospels. Um, I've chosen this morning to focus on the uh, account in the book of Luke. And we're going to be looking at chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. And I'm going to break this into two parts, um, the first being in verses 28 through 40. If you would, uh, let's uh, go to that passage now. You can find it on the rack Bibles there in front of you on page 878. We're looking at Luke chapter 19 verses 28 through 44. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Now, it's in the Gospel of Matthew 2, uh, 21, that uh, Matthew identifies this colt as being a donkey. Jesus goes on, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, his owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Matthew, and, and as Eric read in Mark this morning, uh, uh, adds to that image the laying down of tree branches. But it is uniquely in the Gospel of John that uh, he identifies palm branches, which is where, of course, we get Palm Sunday. Continuing on in verse 37 there, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, 
the whole multitude of his disciples, note that, his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, some of you may have shared some of my experience early as a child in Sunday school on these Palm Sundays, or maybe you've had the chance to observe that in uh, the Sunday school experience of your children. Um, I, what comes to mind is those fun pages that we give to the kids to color, you know, and it's the happy kids dancing with palm fronds in their hands and waving them and, and the smiling figure of Jesus on a cute donkey and, and, and a crowd of celebrating adults behind the scene. And, uh, and certainly there's some truth in those images and, and appropriate for a child. But for us as adults, as we come into this, uh, this passage of Scripture has great depth. There's a lot going on. There's so much more that could be taught that would be far beyond our time today. But let me flesh out some of what I think the biblical context uh, is in this passage that leads up um, as we progress through the Gospel of Luke. Um, and though, I, as I mentioned, this, this event is covered in all four of the Gospels, um, what I found is that in Luke, there is something of a helpful road map. And so I'm kind of following along with that Uh, this morning. So if we go all the way back to chapter 4 in the book of Luke, in verse 14, it says Jesus begins his active ministry at this point, quote-unquote, in the power of the Spirit. So then as we look at the highlights in Luke going forward from that point, he teaches an astonishing authority, right? Heals, performs miracles in great power. He's beginning to call and develop his disciples. And all the while, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. We see that in 8.1. Now the crowds are growing progressively larger and larger, right? Along the way, the amazing event of the transfiguration takes place with Jesus in glorified state meeting Moses and Elijah in the presence of Peter, John, and James. And then in chapter 9, verse 51, the ministry reaches a a very important turning point. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to Jerusalem. Now it's estimated that Jesus is about 100 miles from his destination at that point. And he's going to walk that distance before he mounts a donkey for that final mile So all the subsequent content of the Gospel of Luke from this verse forward is taking place on the way to Jerusalem. So our bigger context is the journey to Jerusalem. I think something else that's real important for us to recognize as we we move through this is um, that Jesus knows exactly what's happening to him. Exactly what lies before him, what awaits him in Jerusalem. He predicts three times his impending death 
First in chapter 9, verses 21 and 22, to his disciples he tells them, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So the entirety of the Jewish religious leadership is going to reject him. Then a second time, in chapter 9, verse 44, Jesus says, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand. Hmm. Despite his plain speech, the disciples are not getting the message. And then in chapter 13, verses 18 through 21, Jesus is teaching the coming of the kingdom, and he's making it clear that it would start small, but then grow to effectively cover the earth. And he uses two parables in that passage. First, the parable of the mustard seed, right? The tiny seed that grows to a great tree. And then the parable of the yeast, and this is one that I think sometimes can go right by us. It talks about the amount of flour in this parable. Three measures of flour. And when you translate that, that's about 50 pounds of flour to be inundated by yeast, just a pinch of yeast. So you get more uh, the power of the parable there. But both parables are describing a kingdom that is coming small to grow great and, in effect, cannot be stopped. Now, I'm guessing that most of you, through various past teachings, have been uh, and told uh, and educated that at this time it was a common expectation of the Jews relative to the coming of the Messiah that he was going to usher in his kingdom in great power. Uh, there was some sense that it was going to come all at once with force, uh, like it would in a military campaign. But clearly Jesus is teaching a very different scenario if they would only listen. In verse 13, 22, we're told that he went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And then in verse 33 through 35, Jesus, in conversation with the Pharisees, says, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. So Jesus is just three days out now from his destination. He continues, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And he goes on with, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Sound familiar? Psalm 118, verse 26. The end of Psalm 18 ends with, They'll give thanks to the Lord for his good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So in our Luke passage that we began with, uh, you note that the people have inserted the king. So in their version, they were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, of course, there's profound, uh, deep teaching from Jesus 
in all the preceding chapters that capture so much of the content and experience on this journey to Jerusalem. But for our purposes today, I want to jump forward then to chapter 18, verse 31. Jesus is predicting and explicitly describes his death a third time to his 12 disciples. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. So still, even those closest to him were not grasping the magnitude of now was just a few days away. Now on this journey towards Jerusalem, the crowds of followers have been again steadily growing. Jesus, it's noted, has been sending out disciples ahead of him into the villages to announce his coming and the message of the kingdom. The people along the way have witnessed miraculous healings, power over demonic forces, provisions of food for thousands of people, and particularly the raising of Lazarus from the dead, which is brought out in the Gospel of John. Those following along with Jesus were increasingly joined at every crossroad and every village by other devout Jews who were coming to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, right? the remembrance celebration of God's deliverance through blood sacrifice for the lives of his people. And the connection to Jesus is, and what he's about to do is obvious. Now, because the word has been spreading like wildfire in the region regarding the miracle of Lazarus returning to life, the people from Jerusalem are also coming out to meet Jesus as he descends into the city, curious to see this person responsible for this miraculous event in their midst. You can sense that the excitement is building, anticipation is swelling. Something great is about to happen. For many of the eyewitnesses, the likely thinking is that God has at last sent the Messiah, our deliverer, the King, has come who will set everything right. He's going to restore the former glory to our nation of Israel, right? Our former life of happiness and prosperity and worldly power and influence, at, at least what we had heard it was like once from our ancestors and from the scriptures. But surely now it's just around the corner. As we come back to the primary text this morning, um, so understand this entire scene is saturated in prophetic uh, fulfillment. And with limited time this morning, I just want to pull out as an example Zechariah 9.9 as a significant uh, verse. The prophet says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. So you get the picture. Everything is converging at this point at the top of the Mount of Olives. 
But no one but Jesus himself really understands what's happening. And as the biblical text makes clear, even amongst the supposedly well-educated religious leaders, uh, they're just as ignorant as what's about to happen. Now I want to go back to uh, our original passage of Scripture and pick it back up uh, in verse 41. It's one of the distinctions in, in Luke here. So 1941 through 44. So as Jesus comes down and gets this first glimpse of the city of Jerusalem lying before him. So it says, When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Wow. Powerfully here, though, we see the heart of Jesus, though he knows in full detail what he faces and what's in front of him. Yet he enters to Jerusalem and his heart goes out to those people who he knows are going to reject him as the Messiah, as Lord and Savior. Ah, The consequences are high with eternal significance. Here he is speaking to the covenant people of God, God's chosen, the Jewish people. Now in this community of believers, some believe the nation as a whole, though, has not and a potential blessing then is lost. Now Jesus' prophecy over Jerusalem then is a consequence of the breach of the Mosaic Covenant. Ultimately, their rejection of him, Jesus, who is God's plan for their redemption. And that's the fulfillment of another prophecy, Jeremiah 6, 6 through 21, of disaster for Jerusalem. And that This current judgment of Jesus is following prophetic judgments already executed by God on the nation-state of Israel through the Assyrian and Babylonian conquest, right? And, And now under Roman occupation. But this particular prophecy of Jesus was fulfilled tragically in A.D. 70. Titus of Rome besieged Jerusalem, destroyed the city, leveled the temple, and killed everybody within it. So it's historical, it's significant, moving, tragic story in so many regards. And the question that I'm challenged with is how do we engage this today? Where are we in this story? Now as I considered this, I couldn't get past the tragedy of the scene. Here the long-awaited Messiah comes in detailed fulfillment of all the prophecies surrounding his coming. The humble Savior comes but his own people refused to come under his protection as that image of the hen and the chicks. They refused to recognize him as their king on the day that he came for them. And in a very real sense, he wasn't the king that they wanted. He wasn't the king that they wanted. The scene brings to mind John. Gospel of John, verse 9. 
through 13, Jesus says, John says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Hmm. And then I thought further about some of Jesus' other words, those that I know you're really familiar with. But Jesus made it abundantly clear through his teachings that his purpose is for coming for us. Think of John 3, 16 and 17, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He came to save us from a life now and an eternity to come that would otherwise be without him. Spiritual darkness. John 10.10 Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Hmm. He came to save us from the tyranny of Satan and evil so that we might live life in full now and forever. John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Remember that peace he wanted to bring. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So he came to bring us peace, first with God and then with one another, in the midst of and in spite of this broken world context we now live in for a brief time. John 8, 31, the second part of the verse. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Hmm. Verse 36 in that same chapter. So if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. He came to bring us truth, breaking the enemy's lies and deception that have kept us enslaved, setting us free, right? Free. John 17, 3. Jesus in his prayer to the Father for us says, and this is eternal life that they know you the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. The ultimate life is that lived in experience with Jesus, an intimate relationship. And that's far from simple, factual knowledge of God. Continuing on in 17, 20-23, Jesus says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us that all of them may be one, Father, just as you live in me and I in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you've sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. The trajectory of relationship between us and Jesus First communication, hearing and knowing his voice, to communion with him, increasingly sharing his values and priorities, 
to ultimately union, unity with him, heart to heart, being one with him in all of our life. Then in Revelation 3, 19 and 20, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. So part of that growing relationship with Jesus is coming under his loving correction and guidance. It's ushering him into our lives and seeking his voice. And then Matthew 24, 30 through 31. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather his elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. So though he came in great humility, as Eric emphasized with the Philippians passage this morning, he is coming again for us in great power. Great power. And let me add one verse to this collection of verses, not in Jesus' words, but in the words of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians three seventeen and 18. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Jesus is more present today than on the day of his entry into Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit is here now within all those who belong to him. And this all around the world, bringing freedom with his presence and power. Now as I think on those, all those verses, I'm personally convinced that Jesus was serious when he said all those things. Don't you? Could he have paid any greater price than what he did to demonstrate to us the serious intent of his heart for us? And here's the hard part. As I consider my own life a follower of Jesus for decades, how often instead of peace and empowerment and fulfillment and freedom, my life is characterized by stress, anxiety, fear, discouragement, depression, anger, a lack of love, a seeming endless self-centeredness. Wow. So, on one hand, for me and perhaps for you, it's not hard for me to see myself in these Jewish people in this scene on the Mount of Olives as Jesus enters Jerusalem. They were his people, but ultimately refused to receive him on his terms in his way as king and savior. They were looking at life through self-centered lenses like I can too. Waiting for a savior of their own making who would do for them what they wanted in life, who would fulfill their personal formula for their happiness. 
And yet here we are as his covenant, new covenant people. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit, and the Spirit makes all the difference in the world. Yet, Scripture makes it clear we can resist, we can quench, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, none of us would doubt the capability of Jesus to do what he said he came to do. We wouldn't do that. Why then would what Jesus came to do for us not seem to be present experience in our lives today? Is it possible then that there are times and ways in parts of our lives that we too are practically rejecting the King who has come for us? Truth is, we trust Him, right, in parts of our life, yet we withhold other parts of our lives, don't we? Sometimes we're just not cooperating. Now, a burden I carry for us in this role is the concern that we can live our entire Christian lives in good religious activities and yet never experience the freedom and the peace that Jesus intended. We can live powerless, frustrated lives, characterized, if we're honest, with more superstition than with faith. But the sad part could be that we could wrongly conclude that this is the best the Christian faith has to offer. Ah. Because, please don't miss this, I believe in practice we're missing the very person of Jesus. That's not God's will for us. We know that just from the sampling of the words of Jesus this morning. But God, those are the two great words in the Bible, aren't they? But God. He has a plan for our transformation, right? He is progressively working in our sanctification day in and day out. We can be so very thankful that though he will not force his way on us, he is patient, compassionate, loving, faithful, full of grace, right? Grace. And he's waiting for us to turn to him, to turn back, to surrender those held back areas of our life. And in that process, we can come to know him personally. Now, I know that sounds really spiritual and, and uh, but I find personally, perhaps you do this morning, that that's not very helpful. And I, I struggled with this part of the message this morning uh, before God, but uh, what I've been led to do is to share with you, uh, part the curtains, if you will, on my own life and, and give you an example of how uh, God is growing me um, and how I think God wants to work in all of us and continue to work. I'm finding that that experience uh, transcends the value of everything else in life. I really mean that. So I'm going to share with you a little snapshot of events for me. It took place over a five-day period. And within that, it provides some examples of how God practically speaks to us 
grows us, and I believe ultimately frees us. So a little bit of background. I had been struggling with discouragement off and on for a couple of years. And some of that ties back, uh, I think, to stepping into this pastor elder show, uh, elder role here at UHC. Uh, though that, for me, is a clear calling of God, but I have to admit that sometimes I've drugged my feet in that calling. Uh, I haven't been the most willing servant at times. I think another aspect is just a practical reality that I'm aging and the limitations that go with that. Now, I'm aware in these periods of discouragement uh, that that's not of God. I know that that's indicating within me a lack or a loss of godly perspective in some aspect of my life. But generally, you know, I've worked through that through times in word and in prayer. Uh, you know, I find the ability to push through and on in an attempt to be obedient in my sense of calling and the demands of the day. This event took place on Thursday in early November, just last year, so just six months ago. I was really burdened and frustrated on that day over a number of fronts in my life, but mostly around ministry. I was questioning if my efforts were making a difference in the kingdom or doing more harm than good. I was struggling in part with what seems like an absence of spiritual fruit, fruit in the form of numeric growth and participation. Now, my normal habit is to have a morning devotional time of scripture reading and responsive prayer, and I do this at home. But this particular morning, I was so discontented, I just felt the need to maybe change my context, maybe reduce distractions. It was a rainy day and windy day, and I decided to go down to the shore of Lake Washington. My hope was that you know, it would be fairly empty. People wouldn't be there. I could get alone with God. On the way, I decided to stop at Starbucks and feed my coffee addiction. Uh, I drink while I'm thinking about it. I wanted to take a cup along with me to, to my meeting with God. and It was interesting, while waiting in line, I couldn't help but notice a man and a woman sitting at a table. And this man was instructing this woman with great intensity, really animated gestures. And he was talking about his incredibly productive life and how she needed to learn to emulate that. And, and he was instructing her to pay more attention to certain aspects of her life. And, and, uh, and she needed to straighten these areas and... Somehow or another, the whole conversation seemed to have this spiritual leadership instruction sense to it. But I looked at this lady's face, and she was just overwhelmed. And it's like, ah. And as I left Starbucks on my drive to the park, I was reflecting on how I wished I had dropped my UH contact card in front of this woman and said, hey, give me a call. You know, I'm, and I could tell her, Jesus, he's the way, the truth, and the life. There's a better way. And he invites people who are burdened and heavy laden to come to him and, and they'll find rest in him. And when I arrived at the park, I set aside kind of my normal approach to devotion. I, and I began searching my Bible for that, that very passage I was thinking of. And of course, it's Matthew eleven twenty eight twenty nine. 29. And as I came to it, I read, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle lowly in heart, you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light, right? You're so familiar with that. Prayerfully, I'm, I'm affirming to God, <laughs> yes, Lord, this is that verse that woman really needed to hear. 
But then I had a very clear and interrupting thought. No, Craig, this verse is for you. That response resonated immediately in my heart. Yes, I recognized that these were the words I needed to hear. I stopped all my efforts and just soaked in those words and reflected before God, listening for what more he wanted to say to me. And he made it clear to me I was taking on a burden that was not mine to carry. I was striving for outcomes that were his alone to accomplish. There was a clear rebuke from the Lord, a need to repent from my lack of trust and faith. Jesus simply asked me to be obedient to him for today. And what followed I would best describe as a sober freedom. I had received loving correction. And I truly celebrate those times because it means Jesus is growing me, right? But I was not fully at peace because I know that this is a challenge of discouragement. has become something of a chronic one for me. So the weekend to follow was very full and it passed quickly. And it was now Monday. And weeks earlier I had come across a, a small book and I intended to read it, put it in my reading pile. And there it sat this morning. It was called Strongholds. Understanding Destroying Satan's Schemes. As I glanced at it this morning, I, I, that morning I felt this was the day I needed to bring, pick that up and bring that into my devotional time. So I was reading through this book prayerfully because I felt that God had led me to that as a source. As I went through, I found the book to be biblical, clarifying, resonant with my experience, and the author in one part keyed in on 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6. Paul, in this passage, is defending his apostleship, remember? And he makes it clear in there that the nature of our spiritual opposition from Satan and his allies, the strongholds is the word used, of arguments and opinions that are lodged against the true knowledge of God. I was reminded that it's a battlefield of the mind and heart. And Satan's methods haven't changed. He's been consistent from the beginning in the garden through the wilderness temptation of Jesus and right up to today. He is continually at work distorting, undermining the word of God and there in the character of God, God's trustworthiness and goodness. I was reading through the latter half of the book and the author was describing the sin of Independence, ah, a centerpiece of pride. And the word independent began rising off the pages to me three-dimensionally. That was a new experience for me. And actually, I was a bit stunned. But I quickly recognized that the Spirit was speaking, and I stopped reading. And I started prayerfully reflecting, processing with God, Lord, I know it's true of me to be generally independent to a fault. Uh, you know, I've spiritually processed in the past, this in the past. Uh, I know its earliest source in my life from a time in childhood. I know a part of this forgiveness is, is key, and I acknowledge to God I felt I had 
forgiven those involved in my past. I wasn't carrying any burdens or ill feelings going forward. And I was really kind of scrambling before God here in this, and almost humorous in retrospect, I was doing all the talking and very little listening until I finally said, Lord, I know you're speaking here, but I don't get it. I don't understand what you're saying to me. You'll have to explain, Lord, what you want me to understand here. And the word immediately came to me. You're independent of me. You're acting independent of me. Ah. And what followed in very quick succession was a verse in 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. I was instantly deeply convicted. God's voice flooded my mind and clarity came immediately. I had been practically living as if that verse was not true. I was believing that my cares were too small and unimportant to God, as if he were somehow limited in his capacity to take on the cares of all of his children. I was living a lie, living out of a lie against God, not taking him at his word, taking guidance from the book that I had been reading, I recognized that this chronic tendency towards independence from God, my lack of faith in his word, and his care for me had all hallmarks of a stronghold of the enemy. It was a consistent attack on the word and character of God. And it was based on lies. So I audibly rebuked all the evil forces that could have been associated with this time in the stronghold in the name of Jesus within the authority given to me as his follower and the power of his death and resurrection. I commanded any evil source to leave and not return. I felt no fear or hesitation, rather recognizing that this, for what it was, and knowing God's will and provision, I felt empowered. And it was followed by a clear, new, palpable sense of freedom. So from this five-day experience in the Spirit, the long-term result for me has been a renewed, deepened sense of intimacy in my daily walk with God. I am choosing, it's a choice, to trust and believe that indeed he cares about all my cares. That in turn has resulted in a lot more prayer throughout the day over my concerns or questions I have regarding his will and ways for me. Very importantly though, even though discouragement still comes regularly in life in this broken world, the power it once had over me is gone. I can testify to that. That stronghold in my life is broken. That has resulted in more peace and joy, freedom, right? I know in part this is one of the ways and some of the ways that God works in our lives to steadily transform us and transform our lives to his glory. 
Going back to the broader context then of 1 Peter 5 that I had mentioned earlier, verse 6 through 9, it reads, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So somewhat quickly here, we're so easily consumed with all the pursuits of life and our goals and our personal desires. You name the path, careers, marriage, family, children, personal achievement, fame, recognition, wealth, power, influence, even church ministry. Many things are good things. They're meant to be blessings from God uh, if left in the design in their proper place. But in all of these endeavors in life, there's this strong tendency to fill our heart's greatest yearning with them. We're somehow convinced that just over the hill of the path that we're running on, that ultimate fulfillment we greatly desire awaits us. And that's a deception. The problem is, as long as our pleasure levels exceed our suffering levels, we can find contentment in here, and we self-deceive, believing that it will only get better from here. And that's a lie of the enemy. But of course, and you know this, what our heart most yearns for is not a destination, it's a person, it's Jesus. So the king is here today, now. Don't reject the king who has come like the people on the Mount of Olives did that day long ago. Don't hold him back from ruling over every part of your life. Walk in an increasingly personal, intimate relationship with him. See, it's only on this path that we do fulfill God's design for us collectively as the body of Christ, described in chapter 4 of Ephesians. That we're to be unified through the Spirit, speaking the truth in love, so that we're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, growing up in Him, from whom the whole body, all of us, joined together, held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part of us is on that path. Increasingly working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up into love. So I invite the the worship team to begin to head up and let me conclude this morning with the thought, the conviction that I believe the Holy Spirit is perhaps speaking to many of you And we encourage you to respond to that uh, as you feel led. But I'd also like to invite you into another consideration that as we go into this next week, what a special and amazing time as we, uh, we head towards the celebration of Easter Sunday and all that that means. And, and, and I would ask you to consider 
finding some alone time every day this next week with God to sit with him, uh, Bible open. Maybe a good passage of scripture to soak on would be uh, the passages in uh, the Gospel of John, chapters 14 through 17. Jesus in that most intimate time with his disciples. And I'd encourage you to sit and dwell on that and bring yourself into the room with Jesus and hear and receive his words. And then in prayerfully and humbly with the Spirit, uh, ask him, Lord, what's holding me back from growing in a more personal and intimate relationship with you? Where in my life are you not yet king? And then listen. I love this quote from A.B. Simpson relative to the voice of God. He said, listen carefully. Jesus speaks softly. So listen to the Spirit. Act on that. But could you imagine as we go through this week, and, and, and I'm going to pursue this, I would love to think about coming to Easter celebration next Sunday with this renewed sense of the filling and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit as he can come into those places of my life that I'm now willing to surrender uh, to the Lord's kingship to be able to come in afresh next Sunday celebrating that the king has come and that renewed sense in me. So I'd invite you to consider that as well. Uh, One last thing, I just hopefully a point of encouragement. Uh, some of these are very practical areas that I've spoke to this morning. Uh, uh, my plans for our, our next uh, spiritual growth efforts are uh, uh, two courses to come, probably consolidated intensive courses that would be a couple of evenings and an all-day Saturday. But the first one is living in the freedom. What are the biblical principles that help us to live in the freedom that Jesus intended for us here now, even in this context, and against an enemy? And then the second course planned is um, how to practically hear the word of God, hear God's voice for us personally, and then also hearing God's voice for others, because he speaks through us to bless and build one another up and it's in his intention to build up the body, and so he uses us in that way as well. But just really unbundle those things and get very practical into how we can grow in those areas in our personal lives.